This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Now let's look at worship. Worship in the early church. Worship. This is an issue that goes back to apostolic times for sure. We know, for example, that Paul was concerned about the worship of the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, he gives his counsel about uh, how orderly worship ought to take place. So this is not something that uh, later originated or emerged, but even goes back to apostolic times. So how did the early church worship? What went on? How did it, how did it work itself out? Well, the obvious first thing to mention is that the church service took place on a Sunday. That was, of course, uh, the same day that Christ arose from the grave. And so the Christians, the early church, met on Sunday. They met in an early morning service. And there were a number of key elements in the early church service. I mentioned them to you. First was the reading of Scripture. This is not unlike and probably derived from a Jewish synagogue. The idea of getting up and reading Scripture. They read from both Old Testament passages and New Testament passages. Uh, in particular, Justin Martyr, for example, mentions that the Gospels are read from the New Testament, the Epistles of Paul are read. And also from the Acts of the Apostles are read. So even though the canon has not been officially established for all Christian churches, some churches are further along the road than others. So there's some variation here. Justin Martyr. Now early on, besides what we now know as canonical scriptures the books of the New Testament, we know that some non-canonical writings were also read in the service. That is, writings outside the New Testament were read in the services. Just give you three quick examples, and we'll talk about these a little later. The Epistle of Clement of Rome. The Epistle of Barnabas. and the shepherd of Hermas. These are three non-canonical writings that were read. Shepherd of Hermas. H-E-R-M-A-S. Now, one of the reasons these were read is because some of the churches early on felt that these were canonical and therefore they had authority. And so they read them. It took the church 
three to four centuries to finally decide unequivocally what the New Testament canon was. So in this early period here, there were times when what we now consider non-canonical scriptures were read as if they were canonical scriptures. There was also a sermon, a reading of scripture and sermons. And it shouldn't surprise any of us, but there were mainly two basic elements here. An exposition of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, to explain them to people. And an exhortation to holy living. If you read much of those sermons, you find that there was a real abiding concern for the way in which the Christians were to live out their lives. In fact, there's a, a very strong emphasis on godly living that seems to characterize the very early church in the early second century. That seems to be almost a priority to distinguish themselves from the culture at large. Now, there is some development here in terms of the sermon. Uh, it may have been that if they followed the Jewish synagogue pattern, that the sermon was open to any male member to stand up and to give an exposition. That seems to have been the case in some of the early churches. But relatively early on, the sermon was the exclusive prerogative of the bishop. So you find the development, certainly by the mid-2nd century, of a sort of clergy. And it's the preaching, the sermon itself, is not something that is given over to the laity at large to, to, to do. The sermon is the exclusive uh, responsibility of the bishop. Now, I think that there, there are examples of where, under the authority of the bishop, the presbyters may have been uh, given the opportunity to also preach. Singing? Well, they had, uh, at least by the mid-third century, they had someone who led the singing itself, a precentor. The bishop, I mean, again, it's hard to, to, to nail this down with absolute precision. But by the third century, someone, at the, I mean, a, an entire an office emerges who led the singing. I don't know that the bishops early on did that. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they did. I just, I just don't know. And I'm not sure if anybody knows early on. A third feature of a worship service was prayer. And this was a very important part of, of the service. Uh, it appears they both had spontaneous prayers and composed prayers. The didache, for example, seems to be a compo have contain a composed prayer. The other thing is that just I just noted is that the usual posture for prayer was standing. And finally, the, the singing. The Christian church inherited the Psalter, the singing of psalms from the synagogue. And so that was uh, a very natural feature of, of the early, early church. One thing to note just in general is that almost all of these features that I've mentioned, the reading, the sermon, the prayer, and the song, and I'll get to the Eucharist here in just a moment, is that these 
are seem to be by and large derived, perhaps modified, but derived primarily from the Jewish synagogue. Uh, and that, and that there's certainly that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That the early church would would follow that pattern. Now, from the middle of the second century to the fifth century, middle of the second to the fifth century, there were two major sections to the worship service. This all took place, the reading, the sermon, the prayer, and the song was in the first section of the worship service. Let me explain. The worship service was divided between those who had been baptized, made a public profession of faith, and in many cases that meant the possibility of, of death, and the catechumens, those who were being catechized, prepared for baptism. They had not yet made a public profession, but had indicated an interest in becoming a Christian or going through the whole process. Now, the, the, the catechumens were permitted to attend the public worship service, reading, sermon, prayer, and song. But only the baptized were permitted to partake of the Lord's Supper. That was an exclusively... The idea of, of partaking of the elements was something that confined to those who had been baptized. Uh, now let's look at the Eucharist. This, of course, was the high point of the worship service. After the catechumens were dismissed, sent on their way, the baptized began to celebrate. And the first thing they did, what was called the kiss of peace. Men kissed men, women kissed women. It was a familial kind of act between brothers and sisters. An acknowledgement that we are in the family of God kind of thing. And of course there is a precedent for this in the writings of Paul. So, there is the kiss of peace. Now, I'll get to this a little later, but that caused some problems for the early church a little later. Now, the Eucharist service itself was divided into two parts. The oblation and the communion itself. The oblation, O-B-L-A-T-I-O-N, and the communion. The oblation was the presenting of the offerings of the congregation, collected by the deacons, and then later distributed to the poor. And then there is the communion itself, the actual partaking of the elements. The elements used were unleavened bread and wine mingled with water. In those days, wine was, was, uh, it was most often the case that it was diluted somewhat by water. The elements, generally speaking, were placed in the hands rather than in the mouth by the uh, presbyters. Or the deacons. I think the deacons also participated in the distribution of the elements. So it's placed in the hands rather than in the mouth. Amid the singing of psalms. 
So as the service was going on, there was continual singing. And the congregation generally received the elements standing. Now, originally, the Eucharist was joined with what is called the agape meal, the love feast. And early on, what you find is that the reading, the sermon, the prayer, and the song took place in the morning service and a separate meeting at night. The same night, on Sunday night, the Eucharist and the agape meal uh, occurred. The Eucharist was in the more... uh, the Eucharist and the Agape Meal originally were celebrated in the evening. But by the second century, again early on, there is development. And the Eucharist and the Agape Meal were, dis- were separated from one another. So that by the second century, now the reading, the sermon, the prayer, the song, and the Eucharist occur in the morning, and the Agape Meal occurred in the evening. So there is some development there early on. And the agape meal was generally just a family dinner. And the thing that's interesting about the agape meal is that was the place where the rich Christians and the poor Christians sat at the same table. Slaves and masters sat at the same table. I can just imagine that that, that, uh, that must have been a wonderful thing to see. Uh It should be known, however, that it wasn't long that there were a number of abuses that came to be associated with this agape meal. Uh, We know if if Paul is right in 1 Corinthians, if if we're right in our interpretation of Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians, things like drunkenness were seeming to take place. uh, And eventually, the agape meal just fell into disuse and is no longer as part. By, by the 4th century, uh, the agape meal is pretty much out of the picture. In fact, there are some churches where it is actually forbidden, the people are forbidden to have an agape meal because of the fear of abuses of one sort or another. One quick note. Uh, I think one of the students, somebody said something about infant communion. Uh, Cyprian, who died in the mid-third century, refers to infant communion. Cyprian, C-Y-P-R-I-A-N. C-Y-P-R-I-A-N. That there were at least, excuse me? Mid-third century. He died in 258. That he seems to say that there were some churches who practiced infant communion. So I I point that out to you. I've got a quote here from Justin Martyr, who died about the 165 A.D. And he gives very, pretty briefly, what he describes an early church service. This is from his first apology. Justin Martyr writes, After the prayers of the catechumens, 
We greet one another. Now, this is the second part of the service. We greet one another with a brotherly kiss. Then bread and cup with water and wine are handed to the president, the bishop of the brethren. He receives them and offers praise, glory, and thanks to the Father of all through the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit for these gifts. When he has ended the prayers and thanksgiving, the whole congregation responds, Amen. For amen in the Hebrew tongue means, so be it. Upon this, the deacons, as we call them, give each of those present some of the blessed bread and of the wine mingled with water and carry it to the absent in their dwellings. This food is called with us the Eucharist, of whom none can partake but the believing and the baptized and who live according to the commands of Christ. For we use these not as common bread and common drink, but like as Jesus Christ our Redeemer was made flesh through the word of God and took upon him flesh and blood for our redemption. So it's, a, it's by and large what I've told you here is how he describes the early church. When? Oh, the first apology of Justin Martyr. I'm sorry. And finally, just a, just a, a word about where they worshipped. Uh, most of you probably know that until the end of the second century, most of the worship services took place in private homes. Sometimes they took places took place in the desert just to get away from the authorities. And there's some debate as to whether or not they ever had a worship service in the catacombs. Uh, some folk, some scholars are dubious about that. Some think that perhaps it actually took place. Uh, at any rate, there, was, there does seem to be some evidence of real appreciation for Christians who have given their life up for the sake of the gospel and that there was a tendency uh, to gather around the graveside. Uh, and to remember their sacrifices. Uh, that, that seems to me to be a fairly natural kind of thing that, that might be expected, but there is some evidence to that effect. Now, the first trace of a church building devoted to the idea of a worship service doesn't come until uh, the early 3rd century, and it's from Tertullian. And he speaks of going to church. Uh, the implication, it, 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 it might be that he's referring to a church building. But we know that by the middle of the 3rd century, there is a building of churches. And by the beginning of the 4th century, we know that Rome had more than 40 church buildings. Okay, let's look at the apostolic fathers, as they are called. When I talk about apostolic fathers, I'm talking about those early church leaders after the apostles. Talk about the period generally from about 100 A.D. to about 150 A.D. And they are called apostolic because they were presumably persons who knew apostles. 
certainly at least one or more of the apostles. 100 to 150. Now, some of you no doubt will know this, but I'll say it anyway. When you talk about the early fathers, we call that patristics or patrology. The idea there is the study of the early fathers. And patristics is a broader term referring generally to the period from about 100 A.D. to the Council of Chalcedon, mid-5th century. That's the period, generally speaking, of patristics, the first uh, five centuries, uh, the second to the fifth century. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time with the Apostolic Fathers, uh, but I do want to cover the basis so that you have some idea of who they were, what they wrote, and what they believed. We have to, as I say, it's a survey course, and we have to move right along. There are certain general characteristics about the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. First, the writings generally are informal and simple statements of sincere faith and piety. Generally informal and generally simple. Secondly, there is little evidence of philosophical kind of thinking involved, as you'll find in some of the later writings. There is particular reverence for the Old Testament in these early apostolic father fathers. In particular, when they talk, when I talk about the reverence for the Old Testament, they seem to be really intent on stressing that Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. That seems to that's a theme, an idea that occurs again and again among the apostolic fathers. And of course, they are acquainted with some of the New Testament writings as well. In a nutshell, these writings are generally concerned for edification, not theological discourse. So that needs to be said at the outset because if we sort of, or if we go to the Apostolic Fathers looking for theological treatises, you won't find it. And it's not, not uh, wise to expect that. Yes. All five of those are just the last. The, the basic point is the writings as a whole are concerned with edification. Simple statements of faith to encourage. Uh, other churches or, or whatever, or people in your church. It is not concerned in the first place about theological reflection. Now we can divide the writings of the Apostolic Fathers into three categories. Letters, epistolary literature. Uh, there's some apocalyptic writing, writings about the end times and catechetical writings. First, the epistolary uh, literature. Mentioned first of all, Clement of Rome. His dates are approximately 30 A.D. to 100 A.D. 
Look at this letter from Clement. It's a letter from Clement, who is the bishop of Rome. Or he's an elder, I should say. He's an elder in the church at Rome. And he writes a letter to the church at Corinth. There had been a, some sort of controversy. And Clement is writing a letter to the church at Corinth to calm everybody down. And he urges that those who are involved in the dispute, that they should submit to the authority of the Corinthian elders in the church. This first, this letter of Clement, written around 95 A.D., is the earliest, as far as we know, the earliest Christian writing after the New Testament that we have. And the most interesting thing about this particular letter is that it's the earliest evidence for ecclesial, ecclesia, ecclesiastical hierarchy in the local congregation. Clearly, there are elders and deacons at this stage. It's a twofold office. The other person who writes letters is Ignatius of Antioch. We've already mentioned him. He died in about 110 A.D. And the story of Ignatius is, is uh, fairly simple. He was arrested because of his Christianity. Tried and convicted of being a Christian. And then he was sent to Rome to be executed. And he was. He was devoured by wild animals. He was a disciple of Peter. And on his, there's some evidence that perhaps he also may have had some contact with Paul and John. That is another matter of debate. On his journey from Antioch to Rome to be executed, he wrote seven letters to various churches, to the Ephesians, to the Romans, to the Philadelphians, the Magnesians, the Smyrnians, and the Trillians. And then he wrote one to Polycarp, who was the Bishop of Smyrna. And these letters are very odd in that Ignatius seems to embrace martyrdom with, with a, a joy. It's, it's very odd. In fact, he discourages other Christians from doing anything to help him. Here is a man who has been condemned to death and he is ready and willing and indeed eager to die. Uh, I'll, I'll mention a comment by Calvin here in a few minutes. But anyway, his letters are important because, as I've already mentioned, they become the first testimony to the idea of a monarchical bishop. He is the first to distinguish a bishop from a group of elders. Calvin speaks of these letters written by Ignatius as, quote, abominable trash. Uh, you have to appreciate that Calvin wasn't keen on bishops because in his day and age that had all kinds of interesting connotations. 
older Protestant historians uh, tended to be rather negative, like Calvin, about Ignatius. One older Protestant scholar says of Ignatius, he is an anti-evangelical formalist, a puerile boaster, a mystic dreamer, and crazy fanatic. Older Catholics, of course, like Ignatius a great deal because they see in him as the earliest uh, justification for a more Roman Catholic church polity with a clear hierarchy at the top of which was a bishop. So, another person who wrote epistles was Polycarp. He died in about 155 A.D. Disciple of John and later Bishop of Smyrna. He was martyred in 155 by being stabbed to death and then his body was burned at the stake. He is famous partly because of his response when he appeared before the Roman authorities. Polycarp was an old man just before he was uh, when he was called to martyrdom. And the Roman authority demanded that he renounce his Christianity, to which Polycarp replied, quote, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then he died. Polycarp wrote a letter to the church at Philippi in uh, about 110 A.D. And again, like so much of this early literature, it's very simple and it's a strong, earnest exhortation to a godly life. One of the interesting things about it, I guess one of the most valuable things about it, is that Polycarp is so unoriginal. He relies very heavily upon the words of the apostles. It's clear that he draws from John and Paul and from the other New Testament writers. And he is very clear to distinguish his authority as a bishop from the authority of the apostles. They clearly have absolute authority as apostles, but he himself does not. He writes, Neither I nor anyone like me can attain to the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul. There were other epistles written. Just to mention again very quickly, there is a, a letter from Barnabas. It's called, it's called the Pseudo-Barnabas. Uh, and it purports to be or, the letter of Barnabas, the Barnabas who accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Uh, it's generally understood that this is not that Barnabas. But rather, it's probably the letter of a converted Jew from Alexandria in Egypt. And this is a letter in which the writer is trying to persuade new converts and to warn them against the Judaizers. The stress is that Christ is sufficient for salvation and they are not bound by the Old Testament law. A second epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. Uh, again, there is serious doubt as to whether this is the same Clement of Rome who wrote the earlier letter that I mentioned. So there's doubt as to whether or not this is Clement. And further, it's not really an epistle. 
if it's more of a sermon or a homily. Again, it is a somewhat feeble exhortation to live the Christian life. And then there was a uh, another epistle from Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S. Uh, and he, what he did is he compiled a book of oral uh, traditions from the apostles, a book entitled The Explanation of the Lord's Discourses. Now, we don't have a copy of this extant, but Irenaeus and Eusebius refer to it. So Papias gathered together some of the sayings of the apostles. The title is An Explanation of the Lord's Discourses. Eusebius. E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S. Well, that's a quick, I, I, I realize it's quick, a quick run-through of some of the, the people who wrote letters. And it, it's not surprising that they would write letters because that's what the apostles did. And so they followed that same pattern, writing to and trying to address uh, situations in various churches, trying to exhort them. Again, generally speaking, these are, these are pretty simple writings. Now there's also, let me go on here, uh, apocalyptic literature. And I'm speaking specifically here of the Shepherd of Hermas. This is a, a Christian allegory. In some ways, it's not unlike John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, written in about 150 A.D. It's the story of a man named Hermas who had been a slave in the city of Rome. And his master was, was a lady named Rhoda, and she freed Hermas from slavery. And Hermas then goes on to accumulate great wealth. But in the process of accumulating all this wealth, he loses his family. Uh, his children fall into great sin. And Hermas and his wife repent of their sins and they turn to Christ. But there's a sad ending because the children do not return or do not turn to Christ in faith. It's called the shepherd because in, there's a vision that takes place in this particular writing. And an angel appears to Hermas and this angel is dressed as a shepherd. And this angel dressed as a shepherd uh, gives certain visions and parables. And the whole purpose of these visions and parables is to encourage people to repent of their sins before the divine judgment which is imminent. The purpose is to encourage people to repent of their sins and avoid the divine judgment which is imminent. And again, the basic theme is holy living. Who was Hermas? Well, early writers wanted to identify him with the Hermes of Apostle of the Apostle Paul in Romans sixteen fourteen. But like so much else that I've said tonight, that also is debated. Catechetical literature 
in these early writings. The didache. Here's how you spell that. The didache or the teaching of the twelve disciples, twelve apostles. Now this has something of an interesting literary history. We didn't know this writing existed until 1875 when in what is now Istanbul, then Constantinople, a Greek bishop discovered this writing and published it. It apparently is from the middle of the second century. There are three parts to the Didache. 1875, it was discovered in Istanbul or Constantinople by a Greek bishop. And it was actually published, first published in 1883. So we didn't know this existed until the last century. Three basic parts to the Didache. The first part covers chapters 1 through 6. And it's very ethical in its orientation. Instructions about the Christian life. And there is the distinction between the way of life and the way of death. You walk the way of life and you do not go the way of death. The second part, chapters 7 through 15, had to do with church discipline. And the final chapter, the third part, is to be watchful for the return of Christ. There is a real expectation that He will be coming soon in the Didache. It's the last chapter 16. So, I've given you three categories. I've looked at some of the major persons and talked very briefly about uh, the writings. Uh, what I want to do now is I want to get in a little more to the theology, what there is of it in this early part, so we get a sense of what it was they believed. Let's look relatively briefly then at the theology of the Apostolic Fathers. <coughs> I want to look first of all at their view of Christ. It's a little disconcerting uh, at this point. There seems to be some unclarity among some of these apostolic fathers about who Christ was. It's pretty clear that they believe in the pre-existence of Christ. Okay, that that is not at issue. But in some of these writings, like the Shepherd of Hermas and Clement of Rome, it appears that there is some tendency to identify Christ with the Holy Spirit. They haven't made that absolutely clear. The point here is, is that for some, not all, for some of the Apostolic Fathers, there is some lack of clarity as to whether, and to make a clear distinction between Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, on the other hand, there are some others, like Ignatius of Antioch, who clearly affirms that Christ is the incarnate God. Ignatius is clear about who Christ is. In fact, he says, quote, 
there is one God who has manifested Himself through Christ His Son. So it, it does appear that Ignatius has, has a good clear idea of the, de- the full deity of Christ. Ignatius is also clear that Christ is fully God and fully man. See that, for example, in his epistle to the Ephesians. Ignatius is also the first writer that we know of outside of the New Testament who clearly asserts that Christ was virgin born. He maintains that. Now, about the work of Christ, it's fairly simple. The idea among the apostolic fathers is simply this. That Christ died on the cross to redeem men from their sins. A straightforward kind of of understanding of the gospel. They don't go into a lot of elaboration. Again, the purpose is primarily edification, not theological reflection. Christ's work is He came to die on the cross to redeem men from their sins. As to the Trinity... Well, it's clear that there is acknowledgement of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see this especially in the baptismal formulas where there's acknowledgement of the deity of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But how the three are related, how to work out the relationship between the three is, is unclear. They have not at this point work that out. Now, by and large, when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith, a Pauline doctrine of justification by faith, it's a little discouraging. Uh, They don't go into a lot of detail. They are at best unclear, mostly. And in fact, there are some hints that works are meritorious. There is great value given to works. I mean, the the emphasis is edification. The emphasis is on holy living. And... Again, we're interpreting here a little bit, but it may be, it looks like there is a great deal of value giving to human works and that there may be an element of merit in here. Including baptism. Uh, I don't know that that's... Yeah, yes, you you find that among certain of the apostolic fathers, to be sure. But... Clement of Rome, I think, makes a statement that I want to read to you that is encouraging uh, that at least he had some idea of a Pauline view of justification, uh, although he seems to be rather the exception. Listen to this. Right now, Clement of Rome writing, All, that is the saints of the Old Testament, became great and glorious not through themselves, nor by their works, nor by their righteousness, but by the will of God. 
Thus we also, who are called by the will of God in Christ Jesus, are righteous, not of ourselves, neither through our wisdom, nor through our understanding, nor through our piety, nor through our works, which we have wrought in purity of our heart, but by faith, by which the Almighty has justified all these from the beginning, to whom be glory in all eternity. So the good news is, is that at least Clement seems to have some idea about what we understand to be the doctrine of justification, which is certainly an important doctrine. Okay, so that's about justification. Eschatology. One of the things that seems to characterize a great many of the apostolic fathers is this expectation that Christ is going to come very soon. In fact, Papias seems to clearly suggest that Christ will return again and physically reign on the earth in a millennial kingdom. Papias is uh, a person that many premillennialists look to as someone who first articulated a premillennial eschatology. A general assessment, then, of the theology of the Apostolic Fathers. It does appear that they do not have the depth of understanding that characterize the Apostles. Uh, again, I, it's worth saying that we don't have all of their writings. So what we're saying is based upon fragmentary evidence. But it doesn't appear they fully caught the meaning of the apostles and were confused at certain points on certain uh, doctrines. How do we explain this? Well, not easily. We are moving in terms of redemptive history. We're moving at this period now, the early 2nd century, we're moving from a period of the supernatural where the work of the Holy Spirit has been working with the, with the, with the apostles. And we're now moving into the, the, the ordinary uh, and the human. And so there is a transition going on here. And, and there's, a, I mean, it's, there's a real drop-off, it would appear, between the theological depth of these early Christians and that attained by the apostles. And it's in this transition period where we have a limited amount of evidence, a limited amount of knowledge of what's going on. But there's also something that's very important that I think it helps us understand this a little bit. And that is that the New Testament canon was still in process at this point. It was not complete. They didn't have... They had the Old Testament. That was clear. And they have... Early on, some of the Gospels and some of the, the letters of, of Paul, but it's not complete. And I think what complicates this even further is that there are various writings that are non-canonical that are thought to be canonical. So you have, there's some confusion here. And the fact that the canon has not been clearly identified and fixed, 
I think is what is a major reason why there seems to be this drop in theological uh, depth when you move from the apostles to the apostolic fathers of this period. I think we also need to appreciate that in many of these churches we're moving from a Jewish culture into a, a Gentile Hellenistic culture. And in this kind of transformation, it, it, it adds complexity and confusion to everything. So we've got to appreciate that the church is now moving into a foreign world with foreign categories. Uh, that is the Gentile world. So it appears then that these early Christians found it somewhat difficult to articulate fully uh, the same theology, at least with the same clarity and the same depth that the apostles did. I sort of think of the early church as a young child and it's growing to maturity. And as a young child learns and it begins to articulate things. Sometimes it comes out a little confused, the words they have. Uh, but then as it grows, it starts to articulate and formulate ideas more clearly. I, I sort of see the early church that way, growing in maturity and knowledge. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.